In a moment, we're going to begin reading in Nahum chapter 1. We're going to focus our attention on uh, chapter 3. We will, once again, for the last time, read the entirety of the prophet. I've had a few people ask me why we do this. And one of the most helpful things, especially when we come to a manageable section of Scripture, is to, to read through the entirety of a book to see how the argument links together from verse to verse and chapter to chapter all at once. And it's not often that we have the opportunity to do that. So reading through this for three weeks is actually a really good use of our time to familiarize ourselves with the book of the Bible that many of us are probably not very familiar with. Nahum writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he speaks to us with the same authority as if Jesus Christ himself were here speaking to us today. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Alkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm. The clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What did you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble, fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord. Though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated from the house of your gods. I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave for you are vile. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace... Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. The scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. The shields of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall, the siege tower is set up, the river gates are opened, the palace melts away, the mistress is stripped, she is carried off, her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all precious things. Desolate! 
Desolation and ruin. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all loins. All faces grow pale. Where is the lion's den? The feeding place of the young lions. Where the lion and the lioness went. Where his cubs were with none to disturb. The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey, his dens with torn flesh. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will burn your chariots in smoke. And the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth. And the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. Woe to the bloody city. All full of lies and plunder. No end to the prey. The crack of the whip and rumble of the wheel. Galloping horse and bounding chariot. Horsemen charging. Flashing sword and glittering spear. Hosts of slain. Heaps of corpses. Dead bodies without end, they stumble over the bodies. And all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile with water around her, her rampart a sea and water her wall? Cush was her strength, Egypt too, and that without limit. Put in the Libyans were her helpers. Yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. For her honored men, lots were cast, and all her great men were bound in chains. You also will be drunken. You will go into hiding. You will seek a refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig trees with first ripe fig. If shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold, your troops are women in your midst. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. Draw water for the siege. Strengthen your forts. Go into the clay. Tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. There the fire will devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the locust. Multiply yourselves like the locust. Multiply like the grasshopper. You increased your merchants more than the stars of the heavens. The locust spreads its wings and flies away. Your princes are like grasshoppers. Your scribes like clouds of locusts, settling on the fences in a day of cold. When the sun rises, they fly away, and no one knows where they are. Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? Let's pray. Father, we ask again for help. These words are mysterious to us. We recognize that they were intended to comfort your people when Nahum wrote them down. Father, we recognize that these are your words when they were written 150 years after Jonah and before the destruction of Nineveh. Father, we recognize that this is one of your prophets, but we confess That these words are hard to read and hard to understand and hard to apply. And Father, if we're honest, we confess that it is hard for us to hear that this will happen 
and there is nothing that can be done about it. We pray, Father, that you would give us a heart of understanding and wisdom today. We pray, Father, that you would give us insight into your text, that we might grow in conformity with its teaching. Father, we pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see the beauty of the gospel as it has been decisively revealed in all of your word. And we ask this in the name of the one true and living God, the triune God, who has revealed himself to us as Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. One of the things that I love to do is go walking through graveyards from time to time. Walking through graveyards and to see the history, and as you're walking through there and to think about all of the people who used to be and the great things that they had done. I love walking through graveyards because there's a reminder that I'm not in charge. Because all of those graveyards are filled with people who thought themselves to be indispensable and in charge. Despite all of the great things that they had done and the history that they had accomplished. The downfall of Assyria and Babylon are recorded over and over and over again in the prophets. It's common. Why? Because they thought themselves to be in charge. With cities full of indispensable people who had no eyes to see that what was coming for them was judgment and destruction. Nahum has taught us about it. Revelation has taught us about it. Isaiah the prophet has prophesied about it. And in fact, if you have your Bible, turn with me now to Isaiah 10. Yet just another place, as we begin to piece this together, to see how Isaiah prophesied of God's decision to judge Assyria for their arrogance and assuming that they, and not the Lord, ruled history. Though many and at full strength, the Lord says these words to Assyria in Isaiah 10, verse 5 and following. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. The staff in their hands is my fury. Against the godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think, but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. For he says, Are not my commanders all kings? Is not Kalno like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria, Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols, whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. For he says, by the strength of my hand I have done it. And by my wisdom, for I have understanding, I remove the boundaries of peoples and plunder their treasuries. Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand has found like a nest the wealth of the peoples as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken. So I have gathered all the earth and there was none that moved a wing or opened the mouth or chirped. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? Or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. Therefore, the Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors, 
And under his glory a burning will be kindled, like the burning of fire. The light of Israel will become a fire, and his holy one a flame. And it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. The glory of his forest and of his fruitful land the Lord will destroy, both soul and body. And it will be as when a sick man wastes away. The remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. In that day, the remnant of Israel... And the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a full end, as decreed in the midst of all the earth. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. For in a very little while, my fury will come to an end and my anger will be directed to their destruction. And now Nahum continues the description of Nineveh's defeat by highlighting the city's humiliation Because the Lord punishes those who trust in their own resources, and joy follows. Three points will frame our time together this morning. All of them will encompass that sentence. Because of their sin, the Lord punishes those who trust in their resources. Look again in Nahum 3, verses 1 through 7. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey. Shedding blood, lying, Exploitation and victimization had the list of sins against Nineveh. Sins that they have not merely slipped into along the way. We have seen that Nineveh is actively pursuing sin. She's not passively doing sin. She's actively sinning against the Lord and destroying other people. Her residents were idolaters who worshipped Asher and Ishtar through perverse and often violent means. Sins that sealed the certainty of the coming judgment of God because they had repeated them over and over and over again, though they had heard the mercy of the prophet Jonah 150 years before. There is, verse 1, no end to their prey. The total atmosphere of the entire community is sinful. It's not merely a bad king in the midst of an otherwise good kingdom with a lot of innocent people dying because of one man's sin. They're a murderous bunch. They're all deceitful. They're an abusive and an oppressive people. None of them is innocent. And their sins have helped them maintain the illusion of control. But the prophet says, verse 1, Woe to the bloody city, the city that would go and destroy others. The city that would skin its victims and hang it on the wall. Woe to the bloody city. For now they are as good as dead. And they will receive the judgment that they have dispensed. As the vividness of the battle resumes with the sights and sounds of attackers on the move. And the inevitable aftermath of war. Verse 2. The crack of the whip. And the rumble of the wheel. Galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. Sight and sound join in electrifying the moment of the charge against the city. 
And you can imagine the terror of the people as the faint hoofbeat turns into a deafening roar when the army advances and gets close. But what really dominates the senses in chapter 3, the difference between chapter 3 and chapter 2, are all the bodies. Hosts of slain. Heaps of corpses. Dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. The stillness of death. From young to old, rich and poor, noble and common, as the cause of Nineveh's downfall is made abundantly clear, verse 4. And all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. Nineveh is a whore of whores. By coarse and insulting language, language that we might be shocked to actually find in the Bible, the prophet actually tears away all of the pretense as he makes the moral degradation of Nineveh plain for all to see. Degradation that has been hard to see because, verse 4, of her graceful and deadly charms. And isn't that just how sin often is? It's hard to see it for what it really is. It's hard to see and hard to see what it really is. That is what makes Nahum so helpful. It teaches us that God is not mocked because he is not fooled by what sin is, even when we are. Friends, it is terrifying to think that Nineveh was able to charm people and maintain the illusion that somehow and in some ways she was upright and good and noble while betraying nations and living like a common whore because all of her pretense deceived them. But all of her perfume pretense, the prophet tells us, led others to the slaughter as she appealed to the sinful heart. And isn't that just like sin too? Not only is it hard to see for what it really is, but it always promises more than it actually gives. It promises us comfort. And it promises us stability. And it promises us that we'll be fine and no one will know. But Nahum tells us that it will not bring you comfort. And it will not give you stability. And it has been found out. And it leads only to ruin and to devastation. The wages of sin, the prophet, just like the apostle teach us, is death. Friend, I wonder if you're here this morning and you don't know that your sin is killing you. It's not something that just disrupts your life. Or means that you will lead a less good life than you would otherwise live if you just sinned a little bit less. Or sinned better. Sinned less bad sins and sinned better sins. Like the other people who have managed their better sins. The Bible tells us. Your sin is killing you. And it is leading you somewhere. It is deceiving you. It is mocking you as you participate in it. It is dragging you down and it will destroy you. And it will lead you beyond the physical death. It will lead you to an eternal death. Nahum teaches us that what looks right isn't always right. There were many things that probably looked right. And he teaches us that it can all be graceful while also being deadly. 
And the prophet says that those who have degraded others will be paid back for their degradation. Look at verse 5. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and will lift up your skirts over your face, and will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. Friends, some of the most chilling words in the Bible is the Lord, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, says for the second time, I am against you to the Ninevites. And tells them that he will not send an angel to deal with them and to devastate them. But he will personally, verse 5, come himself and bring judgment upon them. Look at what he says. I will lift up your skirts over your face. I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you. I will treat you with contempt. I will make you a spectacle. Brothers and sisters, God stands in opposition to sin and to sinners. And he says, here through Nahum, just what the Apostle Paul teaches us in Romans chapter 12, that we are to never avenge ourselves, but to leave it to the wrath of God. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. Now you can imagine the people in Nahum's day that they would have thought, we need to make things right. But Nahum steps on the scene and he says, you don't have to do anything. You just have to wait for God's deliverance. You don't have to inflict punishment on those who have punished you. You don't have to make sins right and perform justice because there is a God of justice and he will make all of it right and he will deal with it. And you can imagine there will be people in that day who believe just like many of us believe. That the delayed justice of God means that God is okay with what has taken place. Or that the delayed justice of God means that God is never going to deal with it. And just like today, as in Nineveh's day, people now and people then would be wrong to think that. Nahum tells us that God will repay that we don't need to take justice into our own hands. I wonder, friend, believer, if that describes you and the way that you interact with other people, the way that you think about your engagement in the community or with the nation or the world, that you need to make it right and deal with it. Somebody's got to do it. It might as well be you. Nahum tells us that we are never to take it into our hands. That there is a God who sees, and he will personally deal with sin and sinners. What his people are to do is to believe that and to wait for the redemption that is theirs. And when he does, the consequences of that are devastating. Because God is determined to expose the gross depravity of sin in all of those who love their sin and who are eager to continue in their sin. Nineveh, like a prostitute, had eagerly exposed her nakedness. It was a part of her trade, but now she will be exposed to her shame before the surrounding nations. And they will be so utterly disgusted when they finally see what she actually is. They will show their disgust as they pelt her with filth. And that is exactly what you think it is. And make her a spectacle for every passerby. They will no longer be able to pretend that they are good. There will be no pretense for their piety anymore. They will be splotched and splattered with outward filth. And everyone will see what she really is. 
and what their actions really are like and what they lead to as she is laid bare. And the God who is not mocked will mock Nineveh like the fool she is as the stunned horror startles absolutely everyone as they gasp with horror and cup their hands over their faces. Verse 7. And all who look at you will shrink away and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Though stunned at the sight of what they see, no one will grieve for Nineveh's calamity. No one will come to her aid. So universal had been the city's oppression that no one could be found to mourn for her, as those who had suffered violence now shrink back and say, Wasted is Nineveh. That which is strong has been shown to be weak. And that which seemed indomitable has been destroyed in a day. And those who seem powerful have been shown to be those who are not powerful. When Nineveh's judgment is sure, and all the nations who suffered from her brutality could not find even one person to weep for her, where shall I seek comforters for you? The prophet underscores the certainty of the judgment that he has pronounced for the Lord, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. And he does it in chapter 3 with a rhetorical question that actually enforces the certainty of what is to come. The first of three very important questions for us here. Verse 7, where shall I seek comforters for you? Verse 8, are you better than Thebes? Verse 19, for upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? And in this way, the prophet actually requires the Ninevites themselves to also interact with the certainty of the coming judgment. Rather than just merely asserting once again the inevitability of their fate, the Word of God now demands that they respond to their threatening circumstances. As the prophet teaches us in verse 7, that part of God's judgment is isolation. No one will help you. Part of God's judgment is that you will have to deal with it altogether alone. No one will come to your aid. And friends, that's a lesson for us. You will bear your own load. You must bear your own load. And you can blame anybody you want in here today, in this state, in this nation and around the world. But there will be no one to blame on that day. Because of their sin, the Lord punishes those who trust in their own resources. Are you trusting in your own resources? Thinking that somehow on that day, you'll be able to bear your own load? God is not mocked. Because of their sin, the Lord punishes those who trust in their resources. Note second, despite their natural advantage, the Lord punishes those who trust in their own resources. Look with me at the second question in verse 8. Are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile with water around her, her rampart a sea, and water her wall? Cush was her strength, Egypt too, and that without limit. Put in the Libyans were her helpers, yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. For her honored men lots were cast, and all her great men were bound in chains. You also will be drunken. You will go into hiding and will seek a refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig trees with first ripe figs. If shaken, they will fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold, your troops are women in your midst. The gates of your your land are laid wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. The city of Nineveh was buffeted by the Euphrates as a natural defense. 
So the prophet mentions another capital city whose natural advantage did not save her from destruction as he now continues to goad along and prick the already demoralized Assyrians. And in comparison to that city, Nineveh is feeble. In comparison to Thebes, Nineveh is feeble. For hundreds of miles down the Nile Delta, an invading army had to march north. And as they did to the right and to the left, they would have had to expose themselves as they marched through enemy-occupied territory. And they would have received assault from all of these who supported Thebes. Friendly fire would have been coming from Thebes to them all the way as they tried to attack the city. And then, if they made it that far past all of them, they would have seen a massive city. 27 miles in circumference. As they would have seen a horizontal wall blinding them from everywhere. As they just looked out in front of them. Rivers and streams and canals and lakes, all formed by the Nile, distributed over the whole broad delta, protecting the city. Could Nineveh say, we're more well protected than that? Are you better than Thebes? No, you're not better than Thebes. And for neighboring supporters, where are they? Cush was her strength. Egypt too. She had none. Was not the conclusion inevitable then? Do you think you're greater than the other mightiest nations on the earth? No. Verse 10. Yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. For her honored men lots were cast and all her great men were bound in chains. All of her might could do nothing to stop the judgment that came. Nothing can withstand the inevitable decree of the Lord, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God of the Bible, who is, verse 8, against her. The prophet is not attempting to convince the inhabitants of Assyria that God's judgment is coming and they need to repent. We've seen that that was Jonah's mission. He is actually mounting a case against the sinful city that is intended to spur on the faith of true believers. He's trying to encourage them concerning the certainty of the coming judgment. And he was reminding them that they will be delivered from a lifetime of oppression. Your salvation is as certain as Nineveh's destruction, friends. Nothing could protect them. And God will protect his people. Nothing can snatch you out of his hands. Your salvation is more sure than gravity. If God is against you, it doesn't matter who is for you. But if God is for you, the prophet teaches us, just like the apostle, no one can stand against you. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Romans 8. Again, very familiar verses. As we remind ourselves of the surety of our salvation. Romans 8, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Answer, no one. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? No one. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? No one. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? No one shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. No, as it is written. 
For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, if God is for us, it does not matter who stands against us. But if God is against us, it does not matter who stands for us. The fall of the Egyptian city of Thebes, mentioned in 663 B.C., after Ashurbanipal succeeded his father, was to teach the Ninevites that they too would fall. And the fate of Thebes should lead the Ninevites to see that there is no doubt about what is coming. They should expect the punishment and that it will follow the same lines. Verse 11. You will also be drunken. You will go into hiding. You will seek a refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig trees with first ripe figs. If shaken, they will fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold, your troops are women in your midst. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. The mightiest of cities has fallen. Nineveh will too. And by the same kind of horrible circumstances, the same type of devastation that accompanied Thebes, Friends, the retributive justice of God shall see to it that the horrors that Nineveh afflicted on others shall be inflicted on her when she is inebriated from the wine of God's wrath and this bully of a nation flees like a panic refugee from her strong fortifications as they are hewn down and overwhelmed. And the imagery of fruit so ripe for the plucking helps us see that it will all be easy pickings, as a southerner would say, for God. The same type of imagery... That the apocalypse later uses. Revelation chapter 6 verse 12. When he opened the sixth seal. I looked and behold there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth. And the full moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth. And the fig tree shed its winter fruit. When it was shaken by a gale. Like the prophet. The apostle depicts the kings of the earth. Strong. Mighty. Great. Rich. Strong. Indomitable. Hiding, fleeing caves and the mountains, pleading for rocks to fall on them because they could not stand before the wrath of the Lamb. Revelation chapter 6 verse 15. The kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Answer, no one. The same Lamb who shows compassion for sinners... By exposing himself to the consuming wrath of God shall come again. And he shall appear to bring wrath and judgment on all who have denied him. The same lamb who died more willingly than you receive eternal life will come again and will destroy all who stand against him. Why will you not come to him? Why will you not trust his mercy? Why will you not plead the mercy of the Lamb? Friend, if you are here and you are not a Christian, Nahum, if he's not teaching us anything, he's teaching us 
that a day is coming perhaps sooner than you think when judgment will fall. And on that day, you will have no other recourse except to buckle under the weight of God's wrath forever. But now, today, this day, God has shown mercy because He has brought you here and placed you here to hear the good news of great joy. That in preparation for that day, you can be ready. If you would turn from sin and trust in His Christ, if you would believe the words of the gospel, just like they were to believe in Nahum's day, to believe now that a day of judgment is coming. So do not trust in your own resources. Do not believe that you will be able to stand on your own, but receive the salvation that God has accomplished for you through Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Friends, He came, He lived, He died as a substitute in your place so that if you would trust in Him, you would not experience the horror of the judgment we are reading about and studying about and learning about, that you would know the rejoicing that follows for all those who are vindicated on that day. Will you believe? Will you trust? Friends, it is a very simple message. Turn away from your sins. Trust in Christ. Repent of your sins. Believe in the gospel. Don't hope in yourself. Hope in the Savior. And the astonishing promise of the gospel is that you will be born again. You will be saved and you will be delivered. And you can look forward and wait for that day with hope, not fear. Friends, if you're here and you'd love to learn more about that, you're in the best of places today. We would love to talk to you. I'll be standing at that tunnel following the service today. There are people in this church that would love to open the Bible with you and to speak to you about the mercy of God. But in the meantime, we learn more about the justice of God to remind ourselves how great that mercy actually is. The readiness for judgment which ripened in Nahum's day shall soon characterize all the earth, the Apostle John tells us. And nothing, nothing, not even natural advantage can protect you from it. As uh, Assyria learned when they were scorned, and judgment was poured out on them when her troops who had boasted great might and strength were cowering like women. The Lord punished those who trusted in their own resources. They bet their safety on a false protection. Friends, I'm wondering if you're doing the same this morning. Are you betting your safety on a false protection? We read about it earlier in the service in the Confession of Faith. Following the service today, go back and read the Statement of Faith. Are you trusting in good works, thinking this will be enough? I give, I serve, I'm a member, I do nice things to even bad people, I've been mostly good, I show up to work on time, I've never committed a crime, I've never committed a felony, I've not only not murdered anybody, I don't want to murder anybody, I share with what, uh, what I have with other people. Friends, nothing can protect you on that day except the mercy of God in Christ. They bet their safety on a false protection. Have you? Because of their sin, the Lord punishes those who trust in their own resources. Despite their natural advantages, the Lord punishes those who trust in their own resources. Notice third, regardless of their strength, the Lord punishes those who trust in their own resources. Verse 14. Draw water for the siege. Strength for your forts. Go into the city and tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. There will be fire to devour you. The sword will cut you off. 
It will devour you like the locust. Multiply yourselves like the locust. Multiply like the grasshopper. You increased your merchants more than the stars of heavens. Locust spreads its wings and flies away. Your princes are like grasshoppers. Your scribes like clouds of locusts settling on the fences in the day of cold. When the sun rises, they fly away. No one knows where they are. Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? The city of Nineveh, strong and mighty, boasted a hundred foot wall that was nearly fifty feet thick and seven and a half miles long at its biggest point. And not even that could protect them from the coming judgment of God. So we should read it as ironic, as the prophet tells them, verse 14, to strengthen their fortifications in preparation for a siege. Preparations will do no good. There is only one way to prepare for that day. And the God who is not mocked is now mocking Assyria. Go on. Boast of your strength and of your might and of your wealth and of your victories. It will not protect you. And the totality of her destruction will be likened to a fire consuming a bug. There the fire will devour you, verse 15. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the locusts. Nahum is not saying that human effort is pointless. He's actually saying something far more specific than that. He is saying all of the human effort in the world to avoid or escape the coming judgment of God is futile. You can do whatever you want. You can go wherever you want. You can serve as much as you want. You can hold up all that you want of all of your good deeds. You can flee anywhere you want. You can get on a plane and now leave the planet. And nothing will save you on that day. No one will stand before you. You will stand by yourself. At the coming judgment of God. You see, we often think that if we merely strive harder, we'll be able to fix it. Nahum is teaching us that we've got it all wrong. We think, I have humans that I have to deal with and enemies that way. I have the earth to deal with and natural circumstances. So if I try harder against them and put myself in the best places against that, I'm going to be able to evade all of the threats. People can't hurt me. The world can't hurt me. But Nahum says, that's an error. You can hide from all of the people. You can get away from all of the calamities. But you're failing to reckon with the living God. The living God. The Lord, strong and mighty. The covenant-making, covenant-keeping God who devours an entire metropolitan area by a locust to underscore his point. Verse 17. Your princes are like grasshoppers. Your scribes like clouds of locusts settling on the fence in a day of cold. What happens when we have a good winter? It kills all the bugs. When the sun rises, they fly away. No one knows where they are. The most obscure and seemingly defenseless of God's creatures brings to their knees the most powerful of God's adversaries. Numbers will do no good. Siege will do no good. The wall will do no good. Money will do no good. Your good deeds will do no good. National defense will not protect you. Verse 18. Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. 
The king is told that his shepherds, those invested with the responsibility of the direction and the rule of the people, are sleeping on the job. They will provide no help at the coming invasion when Nineveh is overwhelmed in August of 612 B.C. by the Medes and the Babylonians. Friends, the wheels of God's justice may grind slowly, but they grind exceedingly fine. And Nahum teaches us that the day is coming when the long-suffering of God will be no more. You see, we want to enact justice because we don't like this slow grind of God's providence. I'm going to make sure that they feel it. I'm going to make sure that it's dealt with. But Nahum says, step back and observe and receive and believe. On that day, vengeance will be swift upon all of God's enemies who are the enemies of God's people. Verse 19. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? Without cell phones or internets, the news spreads. The mighty have fallen. And as a result of her own endless cruelty and the exploitation of others and the extremity of her judgment, now the people whom she has punished rejoice. They rejoice They rejoice with joy as they hear and exult with clapping hands when the Lord punishes those who trust in their own resources. It's not a gleeful gloating at the misfortune of another, but the pleasure of vindication at the realization of all of God's promises. Friends, human effort to avoid or escape the coming judgment of God is futile. Judah was to hear of God's faithful judgment upon Assyria and take courage to be faithful. You are to hear of the judgment of God's enemies and persevere in faithfulness. You should not look out at the world and see people getting away with sin as an excuse for you to indulge and try to get away with sin. But you should look out and mourn and see a people who will be destroyed because of their sin. They will experience punishment and that should spur you on to faithfulness. All of these things were intended for the purpose of convincing the Israelites that God saw, that God heard, that God would act on their behalf, and they were to just simply wait. And that was to rekindle their faith, even when they were discouraged people. And no one would be there to mourn Assyria. Just like no one mourned over the death of Hitler, or Stalin, or Mussolini, or Napoleon, or anyone else, they rejoiced at the destruction of a tyrant. So God's people will rejoice When their enemies are overthrown. In Nahum, God's justice and holiness are upheld because he is not only gracious. Verse 15, behold upon the mountains, chapter 1, verse 15. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. But he is also righteous in his dealings with sin and with those who rebel against him. Something that this table actually reminds us of as well. The Lord punishes those who trust in their own resources. But joy follows for God's people. And this table helps us visualize the joy of those who have trusted in the blood of the Lamb. And who have trusted in the justice of God. The justice of God to deal with their sin. The justice of God to deal with sinners and their sins. And it reminds us. That we will not live in a world where there is sadness and sorrow forevermore. 
It points us forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb, a day when we will rejoice for all of eternity with all of God's people, when all wrong things are made right, and we are seen to be right for our belief in Christ. It points us forward, just like Nahum points the people of God forward. Don't look here. Do not look at now, but look to that day in great hope. And because of what you see there, live faithfully now between this day and that day. Trust in what has been promised. Believe and receive. The same is true for us today. You see, one of the things that's hard for us as Christians is we try to motivate ourselves by what we see right now. And that's why we're often so discouraged. I want to see fruit in my life. Or I want to see fruit in the life of somebody else. Or I want to see this person get what they deserve. Nahum comes and it kind of wakes us up. Stop looking at that. Look out farther. Look out farther to a day when God will deal with it. And see what God has done and promised. And let that motivate you. To move towards that day. And that doesn't change from the Old Testament to the New Testament, does it? God actually, he's always lifting our eyes up and saying, look farther out. Look at what I have promised that I will do. And I will do it. It might not happen when you want it to happen. It won't happen the way that you want it to happen. But it will happen. And on that day, there will be rejoicing. And this table, every time we participate in it, does the same thing. It forces us to look up, just like it forces us in the way that we observe it, to get up and to come forward and to realize our solidarity with God's people. That a day is coming when other people like us who have believed like we have believed will be vindicated for what we have believed And it reminds us that we are not alone as we come down these lines and break off a piece from a common loaf. That we are not the only person who has been or is being faithful. And as we drink from the same cup, we remind ourselves that that sacrifice was for all of God's people. And that all of us together will celebrate on that day what Jesus Christ has done for us and for our salvation. Brothers and sisters, the message of Nahum today is to look up and to look farther out. At the coming judgment of God and believer, it is to do it in hope. And this meal helps us do that. It reminds us that a day is coming that God will judge all of those who trust in their own resources. But joy follows for those who have not trusted in their own resources, but have trusted in the Lamb. And it is with great benefit that we come forward to this table today. Great benefit as we examine ourselves. Are we people who will benefit from the coming hope of deliverance? Or are we people who will experience the judgment of the Lamb? Friends, let me ask you one last time. Where will you stand on that day? Because you will stand there on that day. And you will stand alone. Or you will stand in Christ. And in Christ alone. As we prepare to take this meal in just a few moments and remind ourselves of the gospel. The gospel that we visualize at this table. Of Jesus Christ's body being broken for us. Of Jesus Christ's blood being shed for us. I ask you friends afresh. 
Where will you stand on that day? If you have repented of your sins and believed in the sacrificial and substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have turned from your sins and trusted in this Christ, if you have been baptized, if you are a member in good standing of an evangelical church, we welcome you to come today and to look up and look farther out at the coming of the Lamb. Friends, if you're here and you're not a Christian, if you're here and you're not a believer, someone who is not trusted in Christ, the most godly thing that you can do is remain in your seat as people come forward and find anybody who comes forward today after the service and say, I want to know about the salvation of the Lamb. Will you tell me about it? And I can assure you that they would have no greater joy than to spend their Sunday with you telling you about the Lamb and what He has done for us. Friend, also if you're here and you're hiding sin in your life, believer, and you think no one sees, let Nahum be a wake-up call to you today. As our pastor Will Hall reminded us earlier, you might be able to hide it from others. You might even be able to hide it from yourself. But it is seen clearly. Friend, the most godly thing that you can do today is also abstain from the table and remain in your seat and find one of the pastors after the service and say, I want to deal with my sin afresh, even as a believer. But for everybody else, strugglers on the way, come to this table and rejoice at not only the coming judgment, but the coming revelation of Christ that will result in worship and praise and adoration for what he has done for us and for our salvation in Christ. There will be two lines in just a moment. We're going to ask you to come forward, break off a piece of the bread, take a cup, go around and back to your seat. If you don't feel comfortable uh, doing this, actually, we no longer have the communion kits. You have to feel comfortable. So, (laughs) sorry, I forgot about that when I looked down. So come forward uh, at this time in in just a few moments. I'm going to pray for us and those who are serving uh, the meal with me will actually come forward at this time. Father, we thank you so much for the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask, Father, in Jesus' name, that you would help us now as we celebrate this meal to do it with rejoicing, to do it with great joy as we look up and look farther out and receive what has been done for us, what has been promised to us in Christ. Father, I thank you for these, my friends. Father, we ask today, if there are any among us who have not yet trusted in the Christ, that today would be the day of salvation for them. That they would not experience the judgment to come, but that they would experience the mercy of Christ now and forevermore. And that they would look forward to that day in great hope. Father, we ask that as we partake of this meal, that we would remind ourselves that on that day, we will stand before you. But we will not stand alone if we are in Christ. We will stand in Christ. And his precious blood will cleanse us on that day as it is this day. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.